and welcome to our BMJSDI podcast in honor of the International World HIV Day, brought to you by Professor Anna Maria Geretti, the Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ journal Sexually Transmitted Infections. Following the HIV Glasgow Conference, Professor Geretti has secured two exclusive interviews with international experts in the field of HIV medicine and research. Professor Milos Barczewski, Vice President of the European AIDS Clinical Society based at the Pomeranian Medical University in Poland and Professor Jean-Michel Molinar based at University of Paris in France. With this podcast, we hope to provide you with the latest research and public health insights relevant to HIV and its elimination. Thank you for joining us. This is Anna Maria Geretti. I'm editor-in-chief of the BMJ journal, Sexually Transmitted Infections, bringing you highlights from the HIV Glasgow Conference 2022. Today, we're joined by Jean-Michel Molina, professor of infectious diseases at the University of Paris, and also a busy hospital-based clinician. Jean-Michel's work focuses on prevention of HIV and sexually transmitted infection, and his work has informed so much progress in this area. Welcome, Jean-Michel. Well, thank you, Anna-Maria. It's a great pleasure and honor to be interviewed by you today. Thank you for joining us. Um, let me start, Jean-Michel. We, we have seen a dramatic increase in the incidence of syphilis and gonorrhea, and we even seen a resurgence of LGV in recent times. What tools, old and new, do we have to contain the epidemic of bacterial STIs? Well, you know, uh, I think we have a number of tools and we are trying to develop new tools. I mean, the, we have the classic, you know, abstinence, uh, use of condoms that we should continue to promote. And that's, that's obviously critical. We have also seen recently that, you know, changes in behavior can induce a, a decline in STIs. We've seen that during the lockdown due to COVID or recently with the monkeypox outbreak. But that's clearly not enough. And, uh, you know, there are a number of strategies such as the, the test and treat strategies, which is a, an interesting strategy to uh, uh, avoid transmission between uh, people having uh, sexual intercourse. And frequent testing, for example, of high-risk individuals and early treatment is uh, clearly an interesting and important strategy, such as partner notification. But what would be uh, clearly key for the future would be to have uh, vaccines for um, STIs. I mean, we do have vaccines for viral STIs today, like for hepatitis A or B or HPV, even monkeypox. But we need uh, actually new vaccines for uh, bacterial STIs. And also we, we've done, uh, as others, some work in you know, testing antibiotic prophylaxis for STIs. Um, it's a bit provocative, uh, but it, it could be also useful in, in some situations. Yes. So uh, um, in a few years back, you told us about the benefit of offering on-demand antibiotic prophylaxis with doxycycline to men who have sex with men that reported a recent potential STI exposure. That study showed a reduction in the incidence of syphilis and chlamydia among those taking the post-exposure antibiotic prophylaxis. How has the concept progressed since then? Well, uh, as you know, and, and thank you for uh, reminding us about this uh, these study, the study was done uh, at the time uh, we just uh, got the results from, from the PrEP trial where we've seen such a high effectiveness of uh, uh, TDFFTC for PrEP, but we were struck by the high rates of uh, STIs among people using PrEP. And so we said we, we had to do something about that. And then we tested uh, doxycycline uh, post-exposure prophylaxis 
um, because we, we know that uh, chlamydia and syphilis are, you know, always susceptible to these antibiotics. Uh, we were a bit cautious at that time because, um, you know, uh, when you use such a strategy, you, you can see the short-term benefits, but the long-term consequences, you, you, you need some uh, follow-up. And, and, and first, we, we need to confirm those findings because we had a, such a high decline in, in the rates of syphilis and chlamydia, not so much with gonorrhea, but uh, some uh, limited evidence. And so we said the first thing to do would be to confirm those findings. And, and this year, actually, at the Montreal Conference, the Monrad L Conference, AIDS Conference in July, our colleagues from San Francisco and Seattle uh, released the results of the uh, Doxypap study using the same, um, actually, uh, dosing regimen, uh, 200 milligrams uh, of doxycycline within 72 hours post-sex, and they have found very similar results to ours. I mean, a dramatic decline in the incidence of uh, chlamydia and syphilis and uh, a decline as well, although a bit lower with gonorrhea. So that was interesting to, uh, uh, to have these uh, early data confirmed. And uh, at the Glasgow conference also, we uh, uh, presented the, uh, uh, the, the analysis of the uh, Doxyvac study, another uh, study looking at both doxycycline post-exposure prophylaxis and also the potential cross-protection induced by the Menego B vaccine against gonorrhea. And so our DSMB uh, just met before the uh, because of the results of the Doxypep trial. We decided to look at the unblind data and found uh, a striking also benefit of Doxypep. And what was not uh, so expected, also a benefit of the vaccine to reduce the incidence of gonorrhea. And so uh, we, we could not... Uh, you know, present uh, more data, but uh, these data will be hopefully presented at a future conference. So altogether, these data, uh, you know, have confirmed um, the, 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 the reduced incidence of these STIs using doxypap. There is an ongoing trial in Kenya among women that's going to be important also to, to see whether these results can be extended to women. And now uh, we have to uh, uh, discuss these data and, and uh, see whether we can, um, you know, uh, use these uh, these data in uh, clinical practice, and I guess um, uh, you know people involved in uh, establishing guidelines now will discuss these data because there are still uh, a number of unknowns in terms of you know uh, selecting resistance not only for STIs which could be a a problem but also for uh, you know uh, regular bacteria to see uh, what's the impact on the microbiome for example so there are, there is still work to to be done. Yes, so very interesting, promising data, still some uncertainties to be addressed by um, ongoing and planned studies. Um, you mentioned vaccines as tool, as, you know, as a, as a possible tool against STIs. Now, we are familiar with the use of vaccines against human papillomavirus, so more recently um, uh, in, in containing the spread of monkeypox virus. What about bacterial STIs? You mentioned vaccination. Uh, do, will we have a vaccine against gonorrhea soon? Well, I, I mean, let's hope that would be possible. Uh, there are um, a number of studies now assessing whether the, the Bexel vaccine from GSK, the vaccine that is active against uh, meningococcal B disease, uh, whether this vaccine could reduce the incidence of gonorrhea. And there, there are some, uh, you know, case control studies and uh, uh, retrospective uh, analysis of uh, 
number of now of uh, investigators that are consistent to um, find uh, some protection in people who have received the vaccines for uh, Menago B uh, to be protected against uh, gonorrhea. Um, but uh, we, uh, we need uh, a prospective evidence in a randomized trial, and that's uh, what we've done in our DOXIVAC study in France with the support of the ANRS. And there are uh, similar studies uh, ongoing in Australia, in the US, and Thailand. And uh, because our DOXIVAC study was a, a, a randomized trial with a factorial design where we looked at DOXI and uh, the Menango B vaccine, once we um, looked at the analysis, we looked at both the effect of DOXI and STI, which just mentioned, but also the effect of the vaccine on gonorrhea. And what was interesting and uh, was expected, but uh, we were pleased by the results to see that indeed uh, the Menango B vaccine was able to induce cross-protection uh, to uh, reduce uh, in, in people at risk the incidence of gonorrhea. And that's an independent uh, effect, uh, independent from the DOXI uh, effect as well. So um, again, these are early results. We, we need to um, confirm these data. We, uh, we need to uh, probably wait for all the trials to confirm these findings as well. But uh, this could be uh, really important, I think, for uh, people at risk of STIs and gonorrhea in particular because of the, as you know, emerging increase of resistance among gonorrhea today. And, um, you know, uh, modeling studies would suggest that even a vaccine with a moderate uh, efficacy would have a strong impact on the uh, um, uh, gonorrhea epidemic. So I think uh, that's the first uh, vaccine that may have an impact on bacterial STIs. There are also work in progress for the chlamydia vaccine and even for a syphilis vaccines. But the, uh, I'm not aware yet of, um, you know, data that could be used for clinical practice at this point. Okay, so much to do. Um, and we will be looking forward to the uh, full results and the full analysis of the DOTCVAC study that you are conducting. Um, what's your prediction? Are we close to finding the magic bullet? No, I, I don't think so. But I think uh, we are making a significant progress in uh, in to uh, you know address this issue of uh, increasing STIs uh, globally. And, uh, and that's a concern, not only for MSM using PrEP, but for the general population. I mean, young people, uh, pregnant women with uh, such an increase in congenital syphilis now that we see even in the US uh, for, you know, ethnic minorities, people who are, you know, uh, very much uh, suffering from, from STIs. Uh, so, uh, so I think, you know, combining the tools we have today, those we may have in the future, will probably help. And uh, you, you, you know that the, the goal of WHO and UNAIDS is to reduce by 90% uh, by the 2030 the incidence of STI. So, you know, combining these tools, uh, working with the community, working with the people um, involved, uh, I, I think we, we, we should and we have to make progress. And I think uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and I hope um, that these... Uh, uh, all this research and uh, being done in STI will help to uh, uh, reduce this uh, STI uh, epidemic. So there's a, a message of hope there and uh, a, a key uh, call for combining efforts. Uh, so more than one tool will be required. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Jean-Michel, for your contribution 
today. And also thank you, listeners. This podcast was brought to you by the STI Journal, where we'll be looking forward to publishing on the topics discussed today. Thank you. Thank you very much again. We are joined by Milos Pargeski, who is a clinical specialist and professor in infectious diseases at the Pomeranian Medical University in Szczecin, Poland. Milos is also an associate editor in our journal and the newly elected vice president of the European AIDS Clinical Society. He's here today to bring us his highlights from the conference. Welcome, Milos. Hello, Anna Maria Gianetti. It's a great pleasure to be here with you and to be able to comment on the conference and the pod- and to do this podcast. It's the first time for BMJSTI, so I'm really honored to do so. Thank you. Thank you very much. Milis, a few months ago, UNAIDS raised the alarm that the war in Ukraine risks a humanitarian catastrophe for people living with HIV. They use the word catastrophe, so it, it's really alarming. What is your impression of how events are unfolding in Ukraine? The events in Ukraine are in a way catastrophic. So we are obviously, we'll be speaking today about healthcare issues and and we will orient ourselves on uh, HIV, STIs and other infectious preventable diseases. But you would have to think that uh, there is more than than 100,000 people living with HIV who are treated. There are more than 200,000 people who are infected with HIV, some of them diagnosed and some of them not diagnosed, who have or might have intermittent access to care. There have been more than 300 clinical centers. Some of them have been completely destroyed. And it's just top uh, of this mountain, because then we have to think that only small percentage of Ukrainian population have been um, vaccinated against COVID. Uh, The population also uh, is at risk of uh, rape, of displacement, of both internal and external migration, which we know is associated with higher risk of sexually transmitted infections and also transmissible diseases. Uh, So the vaccination coverage ranging from uh, flu, COVID, hepatitis A, hepatitis B in Ukraine is very often suboptimal. Very often the displaced population are women who are also vulnerable uh, for uh, sexual abuse. So we really have to think that our world has changed. And in Poland, actually, we have seen the largest flow of migration. So we have more than several million border crossing, but it's not the border crossing which are the most important, it's the refugees who stay. So we have more than than 1,400,000 people registered as refugees who enter the Polish healthcare system. And they would require, as I said, uh, HIV medication, hepatitis uh, medication, uh, if they are infected, diagnostics. Uh, they are very largely underscreened for sexually transmitted disease, which is the case for Central and Eastern Europe anyway. And I think this data has not been presented here, but I've got one of the first data of um, syphilis 
uh, rapid screening in our HIV population, which was around five to six percent uh, at baseline. So we don't know whether it's a history of syphilis or whether it's a current syphilis. It's it, this will have to be followed up. So the challenge is there, and it's a challenge for the entire Europe and for the concerted effort. Indeed. So that's really presenting a very bleak uh, picture for Ukraine, and you've highlighted also the challenges that um, are uh, basically being faced in Poland um, with the care needs of the displaced populations. What about HIV prevention? In what, what is happening in Ukraine with HIV prevention? Actually, here at Glasgow, uh, there was a wonderful presentation, very passionate, but also very eye-opening uh, from Anna Kova. So I really think that they are doing amazing job from the perspective of HIV prevention, because it's one of a few central and European countries where uh, PrEP is actually available and it's free of charge. So they have uh, approximately 9,000 people on PrEP and 4,500 being started in 2022, which is for me personally an amazing feat uh, in the setting of a country which is uh, bumped constantly and every day. Uh, there was a drop in the new uh, client prep clients just at the beginning of uh, Russian invasion from February to April more or less and then it rebounded so they are doing amazing incredible job which has to be uh, only praised and it's not only which is slightly different to what we see in uh, remaining uh, Western European countries it's not only oriented to MSM population it also is oriented towards sex workers, discordant couple, people who inject drugs. So only uh, only seventy five percent of people who are on prep were men, and twenty six percent were women, uh, which is, I think, something to note uh, and of a great importance, especially in the, this very difficult time where people might have poor access to anti antiretrovirals and the treatment efficacy might drop. Our data actually shown that it's excellent, so that the uh, maintenance of virological suppression in people who migrated has reached 90%, but it might happen in local populations. We really don't know what's going on inside. So they've been successful in maintaining the HIV prevention programs, despite all the difficulties that the country has been facing. That is certainly Thanks. remarkable. Exactly. And I think uh, that uh, obviously it's also related to the effort of provision of uh, tenofovir amtricitabine. So this is related to the drugs, uh, to the oral drugs that we have. I don't think they are in a position at the moment to think about injectable long acting uh, because it's the rollout would be very difficult, but they were thinking about it uh, from the perspective even of people being displaced. And here we would have to think and discuss about it. We would have to be much more, I, I'm a medic who is cautious uh, about a rollout of long acting inject injectables where you might have a large proportion of people who are lost 
to follow up or possibly uh, in need of the displacement and you don't know what will be the availability of injectables uh, in the near future. But still, uh, we, we really have to think that these people will work without mostly any gratification and they provide these services free of charge for their own population also as a kind of self-protection. Yes, indeed, very, very remarkable data. You mentioned long-acting um, injectables for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. So let's stay on this topic. We know that uh, the World Health Organization recently recommended long-acting cabotegravir for people at risk of HIV exposure. Can you tell our listeners what is long-acting cabotegravir? So long-acting cabotegravir is an injectable integrase inhibitor with long half-life, which is administered intramuscularly. It's used for prevention of HIV. Uh, then you've got first two injections, which are only four weeks apart. And then you've got uh, every two months, so every eight-week injections, which is alternative uh, to the oral tablets and has shown uh, basically superior efficacy uh, compared to tenophobia oral, oral tenophobia and tricytabine. So it's an excellent opportunity to have a novel, uh, widely implementable um, pre-exposure prophylactic option for a lot of populations. We will see how the practical rollout across variety of populations and uh, countries will be, but it's a practical question. But I think it's one of the excellent opportunities to progress with PrEP a step higher to have safe, uh, long-acting, uh, easily accessible uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis. We will see uh, what the cost will be because it will obviously be the issue. Yes. So you, you mentioned the, the superiority. So we've seen data from clinical trials that um, have compared long-acting cabotegravir, the injectable PrEP, uh, with the oral tablets. Um, and we have seen data showing the superiority indeed. What is your impression of the data? Um, how about implementation in the real world? My uh, impression on one hand is very good from the perspective of clinical trial, there were some data about uh, infection despite being on cabotegravir, and I have even asked whether it was associated with any special subtype, and uh, the data are not clear why these breakthrough infections uh, in cases where cabotegravir was administered uh, actually within all the windows and correctly uh, occurred. Uh, I think the implementation uh, will be the challenge across variety, variety of populations. So I think uh, populations who are already uh, accustomed to pre-exposure prophylaxis, like United States, like UK, Spain, Paris, will catch on it uh, very, very quickly. They have uh, dedicated PrEP centers. Uh, they will be able to provide it uh, very well. The second population, which was also mentioned today and in a wonderful presentation, are African populations who are at need of PrEP. And here about implementation, I do not dare to discuss 
uh, because there are much more experts about African countries who could uh, discuss it much better. I could now go a little bit to our region, which I represent Central and Eastern Europe, and migration. So for me, uh, as I just said, uh, long-acting injectable among migrants who might be lost to follow up and today be in one center, tomorrow be in another country, uh, is a little bit challenging. Uh, we still are rolling out a ton of amtrocytomenus PrEP and uh, population is learning about PrEP, learning uh, where to go, learning how to go for a follow-up visits. And also there will be a challenge in detection of a breakthrough infection, which should be done with HIV RNA mostly. So it will be a little bit more difficult uh, than standard uh, serological or ELISA combined testing. But then we have to remember the caution about the data on A6 subtype. So uh, we have also shown, and it's known, that in Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, the predominant HIV-1 subtype is A6. Uh, in our migrant populations, we have detected it in 86, 87% of populations, depending on the uh, subgroup. So we expect that the majority will be uh, infected with that. And uh, we know that A6 was associated with treatment failure in cabotegravirilpivirin uh, HIV treatment trials. And there are no data about uh, how it will behave in populations where A6 is predominant. So I'm cautious here, uh, but I think we need a good clinical trial also in the Central and Eastern Europe, looking at this issue, whether it's implementable and whether it's safe. So the debate goes on about the best way of providing PrEP. And what you are indicating is that there has to be also consideration of the regional, local characteristics of the populations that will be benefiting from access to, to PrEP. Um, you mentioned the need for implementation data. You mentioned the need for outcome data in regions where there is a high prevalence of the A6 HIV subtype, which may be less susceptible to cabotegravir. Are there any other uh, data that you would like to see? The data which we are missing for many, many years from the region are actually basic prevalence STI data. And I think also in populations who are migrating, we really don't know what has happened on the road. Uh, so we really do need even the basic serological and PCR data about chlamydia, gonorrhea, hepatitis, including hepatitis C. Hepatitis C we are collecting, but we are not, for example, swabbing people regularly who are migrating. Uh, on a systematic basis. And this datum has been neglected in Central and Eastern Europe for many, many years. There are no good screening programs. One of the recent screening programs, and the data are not published yet, is the Stipnet study, which was conducted in Poland, uh, which has looked into the prevalence of chlamydia, gonorrhea, HIV, uh, and hepatitis uh, in MSM populations. But data on migrants are not there. Data on heterosexual populations also uh, with uh, risky 
behaviors are not there. Um, so I think it's a call of, for action also for European partners, for European Commission to provide the study, not only in migrants, but also in general populations on STI diagnostics, because it will be fundamental. And now we see, again, unprecedented human movement across countries. So transborder migration also for uh, not only for war, but we are we have been discussing the Ukrainian migrants, but uh, there have been here on the Congress the discussion about Afghanian migrants, Syrian migrants, and nobody really knows about STI in these populations. The expectation is that uh, it will be low, but the data is not fair. And Nilis, when you think about the data on the epidemiology of STIs, are you thinking about people already accessing PrEP? Or are you also thinking about the data being needed to really target PrEP to the populations at risk of HIV infection? I think about both. I think about people on PrEP, but people on PrEP, at least they are within the framework of uh, defined visits and defined recommendations. And yes, in some countries, they would have to need, they would have to pay for STI diagnostics, which reduces uh, the um, technical accessibility for some people. So they, they try to skip uh, some of the diagnostics, but it's being rolled out. But still, uh, for to identify people who would be in need of PrEP. Also, for example, we do not have any data for Central and Eastern Europe about STI prevalence among people who use hemsex. And hemsex is here. People migrate from the parties to Berlin, to Warsaw, to Krakow, uh, to Budapest. Uh, so there are uh, big cities where people engage uh, in chemsex, and it's not systematically uh, followed up. Thank you very much, Milis, um, for your uh, perspectives uh, on these very important topics. And I also thank our uh, listeners. Um, and I'd like to close today by saying that this podcast was brought to you by the STI Journal, and the STI Journal will be looking forward to publishing on the topics we discussed today. Many thanks to Anna Maria, Milos and Jean-Michel for this very interesting podcast. This podcast was recorded by Professor Anna Maria Geretti, interviewing Professor Milos Pachewski, Vice President of the European AIDS Clinical Society based at the Pomeranian Medical University in Poland and Professor Jean-Michel Molina based at University of Paris in France. The BMJ STI podcast team thanks all our listeners for their support and interest. Feel free to follow BMJ STI on our website, Facebook and Twitter and send us your feedback. We wish you all a safe and peaceful holiday season. Mm -hmm.